This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Here again today, Ferd Neiman, mobile home park lawyer with another interview. This one today, I think, is a special one. Our, our guest, he's a former mobile home park property manager, managed a large park here in the Kansas City Metro, which is where, where I met him. Was trying to trying to buy that park. It didn't work out because it was already under contract, but got to know him a little bit, have helped him on the legal side. And he now has uh, moved out on his own and is doing his own park. And he's a mobile home park owner. So great, great success story of a transition from employee to owner. Please welcome our guest, Michael Stillfield. Michael, thanks for coming on. Hey, great to be here. All right. Well, Michael, tell us a little bit about your background and then how you got started in MHP space and tell us a little bit about your story. Well, it actually goes way back before being a park manager. Uh, back in like '03, um, I read a book, Deals on Wheels by Lonnie Scruggs. Oh, yeah. uh, I was just overall interested in, in real estate investment or notes or something. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I was just a punk kid with a few thousand dollars saved up. And uh, so I read that book and just going along like, yeah, I can do that. Oh, I got that much money saved. Yeah, I can talk to this person. And so got down with the book and now the whole way I'm thinking I can do that. So I did it. Uh, did whatever it said and got started and did that. Uh, and I was an employee just at another unrelated job at the time. I uh, was eventually able to quit that. And then for a few years, several years, uh, exclusively did Lonnie deals. And then after the real estate crash, I got, you know, had had a few cash sales. So I had a chunk of cash every once in a while. I'd buy a house. So um Started doing some rentals and some single family homes and did a couple of clips and re, uh, rehabs, um, wholesales, a little bit of everything. And then uh, went into my park that I work at quite a bit one day, talked to the manager, uh, just to keep in touch, look for more Lonnie deals. And she wasn't there. So I talked to assistant manager. So where's so-and-so at? Oh, well, she's not working here anymore. I didn't think anything of it. And um just went on home and got to thinking the next day. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That might be an opportunity. I don't know how to do that, but I could learn. And uh, I'm sure I'd figure it out while I'm going and learn a whole lot along the way. That'd be a good step. So I knew how to get a hold of the owners of that park. And it was a local family type operation, real, real big operation. They had done a lot uh, in the area. Uh, anyway, I talked to them and went in and interviewed and, got the job and I was there seven and a half years and was always looking for a park to buy and just had searches set up uh, and get emailed whenever something came available and, and this one popped up somewhat local so I drove down to see it and worked the numbers and they were, made sense to me and moved forward. That's great and I want, I want to revisit one of the things you mentioned the Lonnie deals because I've read that book, you know, Deals on Wheels by Lonnie Scruggs. I think the term goes around a lot. It's that, that, that theory, that method, I think, has taken a little bit of some arrows because of some Dodd-Frank Act concerns and safe Act concerns. But there, there is it's definitely a business model that can make money. Can you give us the kind of the high-level overview of what a Lonnie deal is and how that works for 
you know, the, the mobile home owner and how it works with the, the mobile home park owner. So in a nutshell, I mean, you, you're buying a home, mobile home for cash. And the reason you can buy it so cheap is because you have some cash and the person selling it, you know, if they want a high, high price, they can't get it because most folks, at least in this area that are buying a mobile home, don't have $10,000 in cash or whatever. Uh, and they can't go get a loan for it because banks just don't loan on older used mobile homes. Uh, so that just plummets the value way down. So I could pick one up. Uh, overall, decent condition, definitely needed work for around, say, $3,000. Uh, put three to 4000 in it, and then I'd sell that for low 20s okay. on, on payments. So buy it cheap for cash, fix it up, resell it on payments. Is the what, what kind of payments, like what kind of down payment would you use, and then what kind of amortization for payment plan? Uh, it would depend upon the, the sales price. I mean, I sold them anywhere from 9900 uh, for something that I got really cheap or was really dated, uh, but still solid. Um, so my average payment was 306 and some change. So I was always shooting for a payment of at least 300 up to whatever I could get. I would occasionally go lower, especially for one of those $9,900 homes. Um, five to seven years-ish. I always tried to keep it under seven years. I don't know why, but just at the time, that's what I was doing. Sure. Um, and down payments of a thousand to fifteen hundred, and occasionally more, and occasionally a cash sale. I mean, there's always a fluke in there somewhere. Right. This standard thousand to fifteen hundred down, uh, three to three fifty a month. And is that three fifty? Did that? Did you then pay the lot rent, or did the, did the, did the resident pay the lot rent to the landowner on top of that? Uh, the resident paid the lot rent to the, the park directly. Got it. Okay, so you're, the 300 or so was all your money. Some of it was profit, some of it was return of your capital. Correct. But it's kind of the business model is you buy a cash, you fix it up, and then it's, it's, it becomes livable, and it becomes a decent home, and then you finance somebody else, and then you're kind right. of part of the transaction so long as they they pay you. They don't pay you, you got to step back in and kind of quasi-foreclose and, and yeah. do it again or, or or eat the lot rent payments to the landowner. That's basically it, right? Uh, well, the parks that I worked in, we had always agreed beforehand that I'm, I'm just acting as a bank. So I'm not guaranteeing their lot rent payments. Okay. If they don't pay, park needs to tell me and we'll work together to get them caught up or get them out or whatever. Okay. If they owe a bunch of money, I'm not paying that because it wasn't my debt. Got it. That's good. That's good for you. Yeah, I've, I've had some money dealers in my parks, and I've, and I've got parking homes, and I've got other homes I've sold in a number of different, a number of different ways. But um, yeah, I've had money dealers in my parking lot. I've always said you got to pay the lot rent, you know. And, and then as a landlord, I wanted to make sure that I, I also vetted the tenant, from especially from a criminal background standpoint. But um, that's 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 good that you're able to do that. There was quick, complete cooperation with the the park managers and owners. Um, because it was a mutually beneficial thing. I mean, I took homes that were nearing the end of their life just based upon the condition they were in and the trend they were following, and I'd give them 20-year new lifespan, keep that space full for them. Uh, and the, the home would look better, too. Um, and they had full screening rights for the tenants, had to pass their screening before I would even consider them. Uh, and then I also screened pretty heavily, and there were times when I would turn down someone as a buyer that the park had approved as a tenant just because I didn't think they were going to be a good risk for me. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Your guys, your guys' interests are often aligned. The Lonnie dealer in the park, but the difference can be on the on the screening because they don't want you to put in a criminal who's rich. You don't want to put in, you know, somebody who's not a criminal but does can't make the payments because then you're going to be upside down financially. But ideally, it works for everybody. That's great. Now tell me, so you did the Lonnie deals. Did you do that in numerous parks? I think. Um, tell us, tell us about how you became. So you mentioned how you got the job as the manager. How big was the park that you were managing? What was your what was your day-to-day -day like there relative to your day-to-day -day now? Were you on your own park? Um, the, the park's 382 spaces. That included about, uh, I think they were 80 empty at any okay. one time. Uh, so 300 households occupied lots. Day-to-day uh, -day was basically customer relations um, is what everything boils down to. I mean, you got to maintain the property. I had uh, an assistant manager and one to two maintenance guys at any one time. There were two positions, but we just seemed to always be churning through one guy. Uh, couldn't couldn't keep that second one steady. So, you know, we had enough work to to keep two maintenance guys busy, especially at the beginning, because honestly, it had been mismanaged for a while. Uh, one of the first things I went in and did that made a vast improvement is just went in and made told everybody to cut down all the brush growing up around their house. Um, you know, just, I don't know what happened was going on before, but uh, we just cleaned things up and then we're always on a steady, steady uh, slope of slow improvement. And um, so that was the maintenance guys. And then the assistant manager and I, we were always... Uh, developing systems because there were no systems. They, they were still using um, photocopies and filling the blanks with pins. Mm. You know, photo, a photocopy, a photocopy, to, a photocopy to do the lease. So uh, I developed all the systems and the programs and the policies that we put in place um, in conjunction with the owner, of course. Everything had to have his approval, and, and I was always asking for input and advice. I was learning as I was going. Um, and then towards the end, you know, pretty much on autopilot, it's just this happens, this is how we respond. This happens, we do this. So, I don't know. It, it got easier at the end, but also kind of boring at the end. So, I was ready for something else. Okay. So, now as, now, as an, now as an owner, what kind of additional steps? I mean, now as the owner, you're probably overseeing more of, you know, leasing, rehab, sale, insurance. I mean, little, it's everything, banking, everything. Yeah. Um, well, COVID's thrown a glitch in my banking, that's for sure. It took me, well, you were helping me on this. It was three to six months. I don't remember now how long just to get an EIN number so I could even open a bank account. Um, that was a challenge in itself because the IRS had just shut down. Um, so nowadays, it's doing a lot of the things that I just described, putting policies in place and, and getting your paperwork together and putting in electronic form and that kind of thing. Um, I'm also doing a lot more maintenance working with my hands out of the office, which I enjoy. I'd rather do that than sit in the office because uh, this place was definitely run down, no doubt about it. So we've rehabbed several homes already, gotten them rented, raised the rents. Um, so a new challenge that I don't have the solution for yet is this is an hour and a half away. So for showing homes, I mean, that's fairly easy. I just put a lockbox on it and, you know, they call me, I give them the code, go in and look, there's leases on the, on the table if you want them. Uh, but then how do I get that lease back? You know, it's a paper lease. 
I don't want to drive down there an hour and a half right. just to pick up a lease. I don't want to ask them to mail it because that can take a few days. Right. Uh, so things like that, I'm trying to figure out what can I do electronically because um, nobody has a printer nowadays. Everybody just has a cell phone, so I can't just email it to them. Um, so there's challenges like that, uh, and I'd like to be able to have them sign everything electronically. Right. Uh, we do the lease and somehow get the keys. I don't know. For rent collections, um, I did get a few th new things figured out that I hadn't done before. So, of course, they can still mail me a check or money order. Uh, I set up a local bank account that they can make a deposit directly into. They just have to fill out a deposit slip with their name and lot number. So, I and that gets scanned. I can see that online, so I know where to apply it. Um, and I set up Google Pay. So, for the more tech-savvy ones, and I, there were surprisingly many, hmm. I was surprised. Um, they got that set up on their phone and linked it to their debit card and click a few buttons and it's directly in my bank account that I like. So that's great. That, that's been my new challenges. Sure. Yeah. We've had those challenges in our parks, um, especially in smaller rural areas. And we've got one park in particular where the managers are Hispanic and there's a language gap on some of the, and the technology gap on some things. But what we've done is we just bought the, the part, we put a part reader in place. The person that puts out the notices, checks the water meters, does the, does some showings, and we'll have them collect the leases. And they'll, we buy them a printer scanner for 300 bucks, and they just scan it to us electronically there. I'm also doing some transition over to like DocuSign. But that's, uh, that's that only works with the higher tech people, not even high tech. Right. That's a challenge a little bit. But having that part reader on site has seemed to help us because that person can also collect the rent checks and just mail them once a month or mail them when they come in. And then, and then you know you've got them in the possession as opposed to, hey, it's in the mail. So, you know, the manager says, it's in my hand. It's, uh -huh. in, the, it's then in the mail. And then uh -huh. as, you, as, you, as you scale, you can get things like rent manager for bookkeeping, which is kind of like QuickBooks on steroids. Yeah, and I can use that when I was managing the large property. That, that's great. It's a little bit expensive for what I'm doing right now. Yeah, that's the challenge when you have one or two parts. It's like it's, it's not inexpensive. But what, they have some functionality where you can have your tenants go to Walmart and pay pay at Walmart, and mm -hmm. you like basically instead of buying a money order, they have a, they charge a fee, but it's less than the money order. You just go there and say, "I'm in lot 10, I owe 300 dollars," and then boom, and then it automatically. The beauty of that is not only does it automatically go in my bank account, it automatically enters that information in the rent manager, which saves oh, saves yeah. bookkeeping time. So that's uh, and it's, it passes the cost on to the resident, but it's the cost they're already paying for money orders. So there's been minimal or no pushback aside mm -hmm. from there's some brain damage associated with becoming higher tech. So, which I, I try to get out of that piece of the business anyway, but so I've got an assistant that does that kind of stuff. But anyway, that, those are some tips that we've been, I can maybe share that we've been uh, working on, but I also want to touch on, you mentioned the EIN because that was a unique challenge. So for everybody else's home, um, it's generally advisable to not own real estate in your personal name. So Michael knew that. So we, we set up an LLC which this is in Missouri. So we set, check the Secretary of State's website. And if the, if the name of his LLC is Main Street Real Estate LLC, we do a search, is that available? Yes, Main Street Real Estate LLC, it was in Missouri. If it wasn't, we gotta find a different name. Well, then you register it in state, you get an articles organization, you get a certificate organization, and then you have to create your operating agreement. The next step is you gotta get an EIN, a federal employee identification number, which you need for opening a bank account and you need for tax reporting purposes. So the challenge that we ran into on this one is the, the, the a common name like Main Street Real Estate LLC, or whatever the one I just made up was, 
despite being available in Missouri, apparently was not available in some other state. So from the federal government, that name is out there more than once, which then normally you get an EIN, takes two minutes to get one, and they give you the number at the end of the 10 questions. In your case, they said, this is too gray because this name is out there, but we had to do this at the last minute on the closing. So we ended up, they were gonna mail it to you, but then COVID happens and they just took six months off. So sorry that that's become uh, a little bit of a nightmare, but I thought that was a good teaching point for others that, because that's one of the things I like to do with this is, you know, what advice can you share? And then what have you learned from the school hard knocks? So together we learned the school hard knocks on EIN, which is seemingly a, a very easy process. But in, in this instance, it became a little messier. But with that in mind, what other advice can you share that you've learned uh, in your transition or in your, your new, uh, new ownership role as an MHP owner? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there hasn't been too much that it haven't been able to figure out. Um, you know, I guess one thing I probably do differently than a lot of big operators. Um, I don't have a lot of working capital. I spent all my money buying the property. I paid cash for it with the intention of refinancing, uh, which again, COVID has slowed that down. Um, so I've got all my money tied up in it uh, and I'm just bootstrapping it up. So uh, I did not plan for several tenants moving out shortly after I closed uh, over the ensuing next couple months. Um, so that reduced my cash flow and I'm down there working on homes, but I get them rented. There's a lot of demand for a nice home, a, a solid home. It doesn't even have to be fancy. Just yeah. everything uh, is not nice where I'm at. So right. I get a good reputation. I, my phone blows up whenever I put one out there. Good. Um, so, I guess I would just recommend making sure you have some, some cash reserves because that's uh, made it a little bit harder and slower than it otherwise would have. Uh, and if you can find a local um, handyman that uh, can do this kind of stuff too, that can definitely speed up the rehabs. And I realize that most folks are probably not going to go out there and do everything themselves like I'm doing. Um, that's just how I am, I guess. So maybe yeah, I'll I think you have the skills to do some of the, the maintenance work and, and rehab work and maybe that you have some of the interest and desire. But I think a lot of people start out that way too, just because it's expensive. I know when I started out in rental properties, like I was mowing grass, I was painting, I was fixing fences, I was changing mm -hmm. locks. In other words, mm -hmm. I wasn't just handy as you. I wasn't doing plumbing. I wasn't doing, you know, sheetrock on the ceiling, but I could do basic repairs. I was doing the showings. I was doing the keeping the books, you know, I was right. all that stuff, right? Right. Um, at some point, you know, there's not time to do that where you figure out what you're better at. You figure out what your highest and best skill is at. Right, right now, like I like to drive the loader and put in driveways, but I do it now once in a while just for fun because it's like, right. it gets me out of my desk, puts some boots and jeans on. But right. I could hire someone for $12 an hour to do that. So it's probably not the highest and best use of my time. But I recognize it, and I haven't done it in six months. But I, there was a time there where I was like, I'm just going to go do this for an hour a week, visit the property. Hey guys, I'm going to go listen to music, drive the loader for an hour, put in five driveways. And it was just fun. Right. But right. I did, I knew what I was doing. I knew it was a waste of money for me to be doing that, but it was, it was relaxation therapy. Right. So, um, to each their own, but that's good. You just got to figure out what your skills are, what your desires are. And then sometimes you, you, you know, what your capital situation is and what you, you know, you can't hire, you know, an expert plumber. You got to do it yourself. An expert plumber is $200 an hour, but it's a $15 task to you might make sense to do it because you're, you're cost savings. So I, I think that's good to, 
just continually evaluate, you know, the, the workload and the, and the whole, you know, dynamics of the situation. So it sounds like you're, you're continually doing that. Well, one thing that would help anybody, uh, I have found that in, in any community, just your, your town community or in a larger mobile home park, that community, there's going to be some very handy people that just want to keep busy or, or whatever. And after you find, try a few of them. I mean, you can find a good, reliable guy eventually, and they are just invaluable. And so for, well, where I'm at now in, in mid-Missouri, uh, the going rate seems to be $10 an hour, which to me seems extremely cheap because I'm used to being up here in the city right. uh, where it's at least 15 to 20 an hour. Right. Uh, but I've, I've hired guys. Well, when I was doing the Lonnie deals, I eventually sold to a guy. Uh, and a couple months later, he says, hey, come look at what I did to the place. I fixed it all up. Well, normally when I hear that, that means they butchered it all up. Yeah. But I went and humored him and went to see what he did. And it looked really good. I could tell he did quality work and knew what he was doing. So I started hiring him. Eventually, he became uh, a full-time handyman. And we worked together for probably five years with me paying him $20 an hour, 40 hours a week. Nice. Um, so I'm just in a new area right now. So I don't have that, that network, but you can build that. So you eventually you find your reliable HVAC guy that, you know, I got two people, two different companies. I call these guys, they're reasonably priced. They show up, they do what they say they're going to do. And this is just my guys for this type of work. And then you find a plumber that this guy's reasonably knows what he's doing. Uh, but you still just always need a general handyman that can go replace a window or fix a leaky toilet or something like that. Right. That, that's a tip is just to develop that network. Now that's good advice. And that's not, that's often not easy. Cause I know we had a park no. where we had a park. Takes time. Yeah. We had a park where we had to renovate like 20 parking homes. These were rough and these were, you know, we got them for a thousand or 2000 a piece. I mean, they were, mm -hmm. they were super rough. So they needed a lot of work and we probably went through 15 guys in one year. It was so frustrating. But then if you get somebody good, like, okay, you want to offer them the ability to do full-time work. And in this case, we could show, look, we got a whole bunch of inventory. You've got full-time work for a good year. So uh -huh. then you can get somebody better. Cause the, the problem we had previously, you know, six, seven years ago, we had a guy, we'd use him 40 hours for one week, 40 hours for the second week. And then we'd only have 20 hours of work. Well, then he'd go have to look for other work, understandably. And then we'd meet him on Friday because there's a major sewer problem. And he'd say, I'm on a roof for the next 10 days. I can't break free. So we're like, right. okay, we need to buy enough property. So we ended up buying some mobile homes and other parts. We ended up buying some duplexes, we ended up having a farm. And we're like, we're going to keep you busy full time. Don't go look for other work. But, we're, but we had to, we then made sure, we made sure we had enough to keep him busy so that we wouldn't lose him on, on the day we needed him. And then we, and then we ever, if we ever got low again, I mean, we'd limit him to 40 hours because he wanted to work like 50, 60. But then if we work 50, 60, we might run out of work. So we limited him to 40 and said, you can do extra at nights and weekends for other people. And that's what he did. But then if we ever got low, we saw it coming and we would go find other, he was a kind of niche guy at mobile homes. We found another mobile home park guy. We're like, the old park owner and said, hey, I've got this guy. I'm going to let you borrow him for a week or two. But if you need, if I need to pull them off for a couple hours to fix a major problem, I get to pull them off. But you can't yeah, poach. Nice. You can't poach him, and he's got to be. Yeah, that's always dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it was, but we did it, and now I've got three or four guys like that. Things like we'll keep you fed, and sometimes we got to relocate them. Okay, I'm I don't have enough work in the city. Can you go out of town for four or five days and paint ten houses? Um, but they're like, yeah, sure. And then they, we pay them for drive time, we pay them overtime, that kind of stuff. So they're willing to. It's kind of fun for them to go to a city. 
but that way I, I'd never run out of full-time work for fear of this, this problem that I've described here. Cause because I've gone through so many guys that it's just like, if you get somebody that shows up sober, hardworking, uh -huh. has, has their own tools, has a truck. Yeah. And geez, grab them. You don't, don't let them get away. Right. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, yeah, that's definitely a good tip. You have any other kind of lessons from the, I said, the school of hard knocks I mean, things that either your mistake or somebody else's mistake that you learn from that you can share with the rest of us so we don't make the same mistake? Uh, you know, what, what I see a lot of people doing, a lot of landlords um, in, in any industry, is not filing for eviction soon enough. Um, you know, it's all well and good to be the nice guy and try to work with folks. But I've learned, especially when I was trying to develop policies for the, the larger part that I managed, you got to stop people from keep digging a hole. Um, so we just set a policy, you know, rent's due on this date. So on this date, we're going to send this notice. And on this date, if it's still not paid, we're going to file it. And we're still willing to work with them all the way through. We would love for you to pay your rent and stay here and right. get caught up and for everything to be good. We all want that. But at the same time, you're digging a hole. If I let you go to the end of the month, well, now you're two months behind. Right. That's a bigger hole. Um, so we just file it and say, well, we'll work with you. Uh, but if it gets to the judgment time and and the judge enters a judgment, that's kind of it. Now, we would sometimes, um, if they had all the money to pay it off and they had been a good tenant not causing problems, I mean, you can still let them stay right uh, but you you can also at that time say well your lease is terminated we're now going to sign a new lease and get things updated we're going to charge you more of a deposit because it's shown to be a risk right so we need to compensate for that so I, I guess my point was just have a policy and follow it and once you get that filed people that yesterday told you they were flat broke had no money weren't were out of work you know, there's no way they could pay rent. Suddenly they're in here today with their a money order for their rent in full. I mean, it's a miracle. Yes. Just uh, have a policy and follow it. And I think a lot of folks let it go way too long and, and then everybody loses. And that's not good. That's that's a good point. And I've learned that the hard way too and have this kind of strict no pay, no stay. But a couple of things we've also done that I've, I've learned, um, part of because of my legal background is, you mentioned all the way up until the judgment, they may pay you. It depend, look at the specific state or municipality, but in general, it's important not to accept partial payment because you could you could lose your, your rights to evict. So like if they owe you $1,500 with legal fees and late fees and rent, and they come in the day before the judgment and give you 400, and you say, oh cool, this, it's progress. And some people think I'll take the 400 and I, they still owe me 11, I'm going to still show up to court tomorrow and ask for 11. Well, if they show up to court and they say, no, 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 I, I took, I paid, I made a payment. We're on a payment plan. The judge may say, oh, well, you accepted 400. Well, now you have to refile. You basically waive that eviction. Hmm. And I'm not into that. most of the time, the tenant that's behind doesn't show up when you get a default judgment, but I've had it come where they, they, they showed up and the, and the judge is like, what's going on here? Like, well, we're on a payment plan with this person. Well, I had a judge, and then another time I even had a full judgment. It was over. They didn't. They didn't pay. I had the judgment. Then when the sheriff shows up to execute the judgment and remove them from the property, she then says, "Hey, I got a month's lot rent." She was she was a tenant owned home, so she only she owed like two or three months lot rent. She paid one month. I'm like, okay, you can you can we'll get you. Yeah, you can start paying an extra twenty five a month on top of lot rent to catch up. Well, then she didn't pay. Well, then I tried to reinforce the judgment, 
And the judge is like, you waived that judgment because you let her back. You let her stay and start paying. Right. You established an oral lease, I believe, at that point. Yeah, I hadn't read the specifics on this, this city or state. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I'm not really do, don't do a lot of evictions. I didn't do it myself. I didn't do evictions myself. I had a local attorney. This is in, I don't know, Taylorville, Illinois, I think this was, you know, six, seven hours away. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do the eviction myself. But then I agreed to take the payment. So it backfired on me. So that was kind of a, a school hard knocks lesson there for me related to yours. But something that... I think my brother came up with this for something. He, my brother does some kind of Lonnie deals as well. And what he came up with was when you're filling out the sign the lease, he has them fill out a piece of paper that says, Hey, please list three emergency contacts mm-hmm. in case we have a problem. And I don't think we tell the tenant that it's in case they don't pay. It's in right. the case of the fire, which is true. It's nice to have contacts in case of an injury or something like that. And those things come up. They do come up. But then also, in my opinion, it's an emergency when you don't pay me. So then when they don't pay lot rent, we call their, their grandma. Say, hi, uh, is this Michael's grandma? Yeah, what's the matter? We got an emergency. Oh, no. Yeah, Michael didn't pay his rent. And he listed you as an emergency contact. He's going to be homeless. And he listed you, so I assume that, that you're going to help pay it. And they'll say, I'm not paying his rent. Well, maybe they say, maybe they will pay his rent. Now, now they've kind of embarrassed Michael, too. And he's like, crap, I should pay. We've had, we had one person, we bought this park in Rantoul, Illinois, and they owed like, I don't even know, five years of rent. So it's a, huge, oh, wow. it's a huge number. So we thought it was, they were toast. So we just wanted to get them on a new lease, start paying rent, or we wanted to get them out of there and take over the home. Well, my manager, Juan, found this guy, and the guy's name is Carlos. He found Carlos's mom in town. He's like, I know this last guy. He found her. She works at, I don't know, laundromat or something. He follows her home, knocks on her door, and says, do you know your son is not honoring his moral and legal obligations to pay rent? And she was livid. She said, I, he, he or I will pay you tomorrow. And we got a check for like five months back rent. Wow. It was unbelievable. So it's like, just, so now I hope that the emergency contacts does that. In that case, I think I got lucky, but um, that's just another little tip. But I, I think, I think your advice is great. Do the, do the evictions because once you, if person falls behind one month, maybe they can catch up two, three, four, at some point, they're never going to catch up, and right. and you're doing them a disservice because if you, you instead, really if you instead said, hey, let's get one month and then just we'll get on a payment plan. You pay one month plus fifty bucks, and you kind of pay off that one month that's behind. Maybe we'll let you float as long as month two is good with some extra. But if you yeah. let them get too far behind, eventually it's going to be this big number, and one day you're going to be hurting for cash. You're going to be just pissed, and you're going to say, I'm done with them, and you're going to you're just going to say eviction. And now they're home. Now you've let them dig too big a hole versus, as you mentioned, they were broke today, but tomorrow they got all the money. They, it, people can have some, some fight in them and go borrow, steal, you know, work overtime, find a month's worth. But you let them get behind two, three, six months. Mm-hmm. It's only a matter of time until you take that house back, especially, right. especially on the rentals. You know, tenant homes have a much stickier tenant base, but the rentals, they, find, they fall three, four, five months behind. They're going to jump in the middle of the night. Yeah, and, and nobody, I mean, no, we don't want to evict anybody if we don't have to. Right, so. agreed. All right, Michael, well, appreciate your time. Where, where can our viewers get a hold of you, or do you prefer to be invisible? Uh, if, we want, if we're looking for Michael Stilton, how do we get a hold of you? Um, oh, I don't know, email me, and uh, llc at msn.com. All right. That's Mary, Mary, Henry, Larry, Larry, Charlie. All right. Uh, so, hey, are we completely out of time? 
No, go ahead. There's no, there's no well, limit. Uh, you, you sent me a list of questions um, before, before uh, meeting here. And uh, one of them, I don't remember what the question was, but my answer had to do with screening. That okay. was one of the best pieces of advice I had oh. gotten. Uh, and uh, this is something I tell everybody. This is extremely important. So back before I had bought anything, uh, there used to be a website called CRE Online. Uh, and it had one of those old-timey bulletin boards, message boards, whatever, where people from all over the country that were doing these Lonnie deals would post and help each other out. And I mean, it's just a great community. Um, so there was this guy on there that said, you really only have one job as a landlord or, you know, selling these Lonnie deals and, and financing them. Uh, don't let a deadbeat move into your house. That's your only job. And he says, the way you do that is by thorough screening. Uh, and if you do get a deadbeat in your house, then one of two things happened. You didn't do your job or you took a good person and turned them into a deadbeat. <laughs> so most likely you didn't do your job. Right. So he just stressed the importance of screening and being nervous about this at the time, having never done it before. I took that very seriously and I have always been focusing on how to screen, trying to learn how to screen effectively. What are your resources? What, you know, what do you need to look for? Um, and so I would just stress that to everybody else too. Thorough screening is is just so extremely important. And I have always had above average luck, if you want to call it that, uh, with my tenants because I I do a thorough screening. And one of the most important things I think I can do is talk to their former landlords and be sure you're talking to their former landlord. Right. Um, I had somebody apply for one of these, the, the mobile homes that I have now, uh, just a couple months ago, and she put down her sister or her cousin or somebody, I don't remember. Right. Uh, and the way I found this out is because when I called, it went to voicemail and it says, this is so-and-so, which was not the name it was supposed to be. So then I started digging. So I got lucky on that. If she had answered, I might not have known. But uh, uh, so anyway, I, found, I was able to get a co in contact with the actual landlord. I'm very good at turning up phone numbers for people that supposedly don't even exist. Um, got a hold of her and talked to her. And number one, this applicant got disqualified because she lied. So she's toast already, no matter what anybody said good about her. Um, but yeah, just talk to, to former landlords. And some tricks for that is, you know, if, especially if they own rental properties and they're self-managing or anything like that, do Google Earth uh, and go drive by the house. A lot of times there's just sign in the yard with the phone number on it in the photo on Google Earth. Or if they rent it from an apartment, complex or you know any commercial type thing freshly managed there would be a sign in the front with the phone number right there on google earth um and you, you can find lots of things just on the internet but talk to former landlords and screen 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 so that's my tip that that's great and we if you, you figured it out on your own i i had somebody else tell me so i got i got kind of lucky um as well but we use a company called landlord tenant services and, and they're real big on that and one thing they told us that they do which is, I know it works, is they'll call more than one landlord. Because if you call the current landlord, like, hey, Michael, how's this tenant? If the tenant's horrible, the landlord may say, oh, she's great. I hope she doesn't leave. Right. Hoping they get rid of them. But if you call the landlord from two landlords ago, they have skin in the game. That, that landlord's going to say, oh, my gosh, this person's a nightmare. Don't ever do it. Because they don't have skin in the game. So that was one tip they used. And then another thing, it's like in your example of the lady that went to voicemail, and you said, you know, you wouldn't have figured it out had she answered. Here's what the LTS does. 
they'll say, let's say that the, the, the stated rent is a, is a thousand a month. And you call the person, it's the sister. The sister is not going to really know all the details of that lease. You could say something like, okay, I see here that um, you're the landlord. Yes, I'm the landlord. Oh, she's a great tenant, best tenant ever. Oh, um, now rent's 1200 a month, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, always on time. Where the real landlord will know, no, no, it's not 1200 a month. It's 1000 But if you deceive the fake landlord, they may not catch that or a pet or something else. So that was a, I thought that was a good tip that LTS does that occasionally catches those sort of things. I've had friends be like, hey, man, will you pretend to be my landlord? I'm like, no, I'm not going to be your landlord. But they're like, I can't, I got, you know, I'm in trouble. I got a new, new place and I need a reference. It's like, I had a friend do that on a job. He made up, a, one friend made up an entire fake resume. And he said he was like an IT exec and he was like kind to sharp computers. And he, I'm like, you're not going to get this job. He's like, just pretend to be my supervisor. I'm like, I'm not going to get in on this. But he, these people right, will no. take these lies to these elaborate levels. Right. Yeah, I, I would slightly disagree with your, your trick of, of stating a, a different rent because I have found that a lot of tenants don't remember what their rent was. They know about what it was. And a lot of mom and pop landlords, you know, they don't keep records. Or if, okay. if, you, uh, if you do catch them and, and they're out driving somewhere, they'll go ahead and answer all your questions. They don't need to release. Uh, but they're doing it all from memory. And they kind of know, but not really know. Another good thing to do along those lines is to – Ask them, well, what address were they renting from you again? Oh, it, even if they don't remember exactly, well, it was the place over on Baker Street. You know, so they at least you get some verification that way that, in my opinion, sure. would be more accurate than trying to get an exact rent match. That's just my two cents. Not no, that's, that, that, make, that, makes, that makes sense for sure. That's a good idea. So, all right, that's, that's my tips. All right, Michael, appreciate it. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.